when, after three days and three nights, Inanna had not returned. Ninshubor set up a lament for her by the ruins. She beat the drum for her in the assembly places. She circled the houses of the gods. She tore at her eyes. She tore at her mouth. She tore at her thighs. She dressed herself in a single garment like a beggar. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here with my guests. Kira. Victoria. So continuing from last episode, we were reading Inanna's Descent to the Underworld, translated by Wolkstein and Kramer. Previously, Inanna went down into the underworld and told her servant, Ninshubur, essentially, if I don't come back, come break me out. So as Inanna feared, she is killed by her sister, Erish Kigal, who keeps her corpse in hell. Ninshubur set up a lament for her by the ruins. Okay, so this is one she told her to, like, mourn her as if she was dead. Mm-hmm. Alone, she set out for Nippur and the temple of Enlil. When she entered the holy shrine, she called out, O oh, Father Enlil, do not let your daughter be put to death in the underworld. Do not let your bright silver be covered with the dust of the underworld. Do not let your precious lapis be broken into stone for the stone worker. Do not let your fragrant boxwood be cut into wood for the woodworker. Do not let the holy priestess of heaven be put to death in the underworld. Father Enlil answered angrily, my daughter craved the great above, Inanna craved the great below. She who receives the May of the Underworld does not return. She who goes to the Dark City stays there. Father Enlil would not help. Wait, so are, are Mays of the Underworld different than regular Mays? Actually, I don't know. Well, that, yeah, that means you're, like, receiving the power and, like, the special abilities. So, to me, it sounds like the May are less, like, commandment tablets and they're more, like, powers that are contained in objects. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so the one in the previous poem that we just went over, those were not maze of the underworld. Cause that... Yeah, those were different. Those were just regular overworld maze. So that makes sense. I guess he's saying, like, if you're if you're taking the power of the underworld, then, <laughs> you know, you got to be part of the underworld now. That makes sense. So then she goes to Ur to ask Nana, the moon god, for help, but he refuses, saying the same thing. Then she goes to Eridu to ask Enki, the god of wisdom and fresh water. Father Enki said, What has happened? What has my daughter done? Inanna, queen of all the lands. Holy Priestess of the Aeana, what has happened? I am troubled. I am grieved. So he agrees to help. From under his fingernail, Father Enki brought forth dirt. He fashioned the dirt into a Kurgara, a creature neither male nor female. Okay, so that's cool. It's cool that he made the creature from dirt, yeah. from under his fingernail. It's just like the context of these pieces of literature are very cool. Right. From under the fingernail of his other hand, he brought forth dirt. He fashioned the dirt into a Galatur, a creature neither male nor female. He gave the food of life to the Kurgara. He gave the water of life to the Galatur. Oh, that's nice. Got some non-binary little creature monsters. Right. Love it. Which is interesting because the cult of Inanna also had at least gender non-conforming priests. Nice. We also have a type of priest called the Gala priest. They're like assigned male at birth, but they sing in Emesal. is like a, a woman's dialect. In right. Huh. Enki spoke to the Kurgara and Galatur saying, Go to the underworld. Enter the door like flies. Erich Kigal, the queen of the underworld, is moaning with the cries of a woman about to give birth. No linen is spread over her body. Her breasts are uncovered. Her hair swirls about her head like leeks. When she cries, oh, oh, my inside, cry also, oh, oh, your inside. When she cries, oh, oh, my outside, cry also, oh, oh, your outside. The queen will be pleased. She will offer you a gift. Ask her only for the corpse that hangs from the hook on the wall. One of you will sprinkle the food of life on it. The other will sprinkle the water of life. Inanna will arise. That's cool. I like plant food. What, what is the food of life here? 
I don't know, but it apparently revives people. It's okay. like a, an it's elixir not of like not being dead anymore. The Kurgara and the Galatur heeded Enki's words. They set out for the underworld. Like flies, they slipped through the cracks of the gates. They entered the throne room of the queen of the underworld. No linen was spread over her body. Her breasts were uncovered. Her hair swirled about her head like leeks. So just like Enki said, Ereshkigal is in the underworld, giving birth, at least symbolically. But she's apparently experiencing real pain, so the two creatures sympathize with her. Oh my gosh, that's this is weird. This makes me think of like the I haven't seen this movie, but I've just seen like I've Midsummer like about a cult. Oh, yeah, yeah. There it's like a person's crying and like everybody in the group like touches their shoulders and they all like touch each other's shoulders and they all like mimic her like breathing patterns and crying so that she doesn't like have her own individual like feelings. It's all like she it like makes her part of the group. I watched like a YouTube video about cult like cult scenes and like being reviewed by a person like a deprogrammer of cult programmer. So yeah, oh, that's, that's it was interesting. Um, he rated them on like most realistic to least. But anyway, apparently that's the thing they do like to depersonalize people, deindividualize people. It's like mimic what you're going through so that what you're going through isn't your own experience. It's the whole group's experience, and you're you are oh, anyway part of the group. That's what that's making me remember. Huh. It's like that scene. <laughs> Oh, my inside. Oh, my outside. <laughs> or, ooh, ooh, or, um, mm. same situation with, yeah, Handmaid's Tale, yeah, where they, like, when the Handmaid's giving birth, then, like, the, like, woman who owns her basically sits behind her in the same position and, like, screams and breathes in the same way that the person who's actually giving birth does and, like, acts as if they're giving birth. I forget what the, what the word for it is. Sympathetic magic, I think. Or just like, I don't know, I guess the basis of ritual in general is like, you want to symbolize a thing, but for whatever reason, you can't do that thing really. So you have to come up with a ritual that kind of mimics the actions of that thing mm-hmm. and or like achieves that thing symbolically, you know, so that magically you can have that result that you desire. Yeah. So it's, it's not actually clear in the story if Erich Kegel is actually giving birth or right. if, again, this is kind of a ritual symbolic scene that symbolizes something that is not clear to us. Erich Kegel said, Who are you? Moaning, groaning, sighing with me? If you are gods, I will bless you. If you are mortals, I will give you a gift. I will give you the water gift, the river in its fullness. The Kurgara and Galatur answered, We do not wish it. Oh, she's about to ink on them. She's going to just like break her water. What? <laughs> no, but that's a, that'd be much funnier for her. It's like, hey, you ever seen a squid? What do you mean? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. And it's, again, it's like this this ancestral, like, cultural tradition of, like, if somebody's screaming, you just scream with them. Yeah. yeah. Which is weird because I was going to say, like, if, if these weird humanoid, like, I imagine them being, like, clay things mm-hmm. that, like, don't really have features. Mm-hmm. They have kind of, like, Ken doll <laughs> yeah. blobs between their legs. <laughs> Like, if they just came up to me and were just, like, trying to talk to me while I was giving birth. <laughs> like, that's not a great time to make friends with someone. Yeah, well. Or try to win their favor. Yeah. Yeah. Erich Kigal said, I will give you the grain gift, the fields and harvest. The Kurgara and Galatur said, we do not wish it. Erich Kigal said, speak then, what do you wish? They answered, we wish only the corpse that hangs on the hook from the wall. Erich Kigal said, the corpse belongs to Inanna. They said, whether it belongs to our queen, whether it belongs to our king, that is what we wish. The corpse was given to them. The Kurgara sprinkled the food of life on the corpse. The Galatur sprinkled the water of life on the corpse. Inanna arose. So they just water her and sprinkle her with plant food and she comes back to life. Pretty much. Wow. Inanna was about to ascend from the underworld when the Anuna, the judges of the underworld, seized her. They said, 
No one ascends from the underworld unmarked. If Inanna wishes to return from the underworld, she must provide someone in her place. So we'll see how this works out for Inanna. But first, today we are continuing our tour of the Pottery Neolithic by looking at Tel Sabi Abyad, which is Arabic for Mound of the White Boy. We're in the Balik River Valley in northern Syria. The site is five hectares, but it wasn't all occupied at the same time. It was occupied as far back as the pre-pottery Neolithic B, but today we'll focus on the Pottery Neolithic. Then we'll also take a look at the role of women in Pottery Neolithic society and how it may have changed. So Sabi Abyad was occupied continuously between about 6900 and 5800 BCE, so most of the Pottery Neolithic. We're going to be looking at two phases, one before and one after the 8.2 Killier event. So this is actually a cluster of villages, so four separate villages, each within 150 meters of each other, so about a two-minute walk. They're arranged on a rough north-south axis. Each mound was settled at a different time, and each has its own history. Sabi Abyad was first occupied around 6900 BCE, at the very beginning of the Pottery Neolithic. It's one of the first sites known to use pottery, so we're going to start with the period 6900 to 6200 BCE. At this point, only two mounds were occupied. These are on the west side. About two total hectares were settled. So the size of buildings ranged from small buildings with one room, 15 square meters, to a large building with many rooms, to 64 square meters. That's a range of 160 to 700 square feet. By the end of this earliest phase, we see about 10 buildings on the northwestern mound. These are generally arranged in groups of two to five. Some of these are tripartite buildings, which will be incredibly important later. That is a T-shaped central hall, sometimes with several side rooms. We also have a couple large buildings and smaller storage sheds. So each cluster of buildings might have been one extended household and its associated storage rooms and so on. One building has two long, narrow rooms. One room has a large basin covered in white plaster. And in the other room, we see skeletons of three young children lying together. There's another large rectangular building with many small rooms between two and four square meters accessed through small, low, curved portholes that are only 50 centimeters or 20 inches across, which are, again, probably silos for storing grain. In the areas between buildings, we see large hearths that are up to two meters across, probably used for cooking food for a larger group than just a particular household. We see storehouses. They might be operated by a community or a household or something else. We see stamp seals, which we talked about last time, which might be evidence of a strengthening concept of personal property or household property, although it might also be a non-hierarchical record-keeping technique. In 2012, Peter Ackermans wrote, quote, It seems reasonable to assume that the population per phase was restricted to a few dozen persons at the most, distributed over perhaps two to ten households, end quote. So as you've been talking about, like other pottery Neolithic sites, we see semi-permanent occupation at Sabi Abyad. Most archaeological levels are occupied for about 20 to 30 years, that is about one generation. A few outliers are occupied up to 80 to 90 years. So as far as we can tell, houses weren't deliberately destroyed, just abandoned after a few decades, maybe when someone dies. Once the houses are abandoned, they fill up with domestic waste. That is, people in the community use the empty houses as dumpsters. Eventually, the walls collapse, covering the floor in rubble. Sometimes, after several decades, people will come back and build a new house on top of the ruins, using the same walls on the same foundations, and laying a new floor on top of the old rubble. The reason for this was probably primarily cultural. You could use mud brick houses for longer if you maintain them. They don't automatically disintegrate after 30 years, but the fact that they didn't put in the effort to maintain them, the fact they seem to have moved away from the site altogether after abandoning the houses, probably shows that the reasons for abandoning and reoccupying these houses was social or cultural rather than practical. But even though most building clusters only lasted a generation, the site as a whole was occupied more or less continuously. So the community itself probably survived, just moving around within this mound. So like I mentioned, with the exception of some pre-pottery Neolithic B pottery in Palestine, Sabi Abyad has some of the oldest known pottery around 6900 BCE. It's mostly found in households. In 2012, Joan Oates called this, quote, fully developed Samarin ware, end quote. Samarin being one of the pottery styles that we looked at last episode. 
So like elsewhere, the earliest pottery that we see is apparently the result of a long process of development that is invisible to modern archaeology. At the end of this period, between about 6500 and 6300 BCE, some vessels already hold over 50 liters, and by the mid-6200s, some pots will hold over 75 liters, or 20 gallons. In 2019, Burju Yildirim wrote, quote, Instead of functioning as cooking or storageware, the use of this pottery has been attributed to daily commensal events at the household level. These special occasions may include rituals or honoring guests through the material proxy of pots. The pots may have served as an identity reflection within and beyond the local community, end quote. In other words, feasts would be the main avenue for social symbolism. You would use them to form and strengthen your relationships with your guests. Dinner and utensils, pottery and so on, would be a way to show off wealth, not only with the food you serve and the amount of labor and social connections that went into procuring it, but also the pottery itself would be labor-intensive and would require social connections to acquire. And maybe, as we'll talk about, these feasts may have been used to reify social roles like gender across the entire cultural area. So, around 6200 BCE, at Sabi Abiyad, we see a major shift in material culture. We see mass production of pottery in new shapes. We see two-story pottery kilns, able to make twice as much pottery at once. We see lots of spindle whorls, which might indicate more intensive textile production, as well as new architecture and weapons and so on. By one estimate during this period, the entire population of the Balik Valley was only between about 350 and 650 people, not just in the village of Sabi Abiyad, but along the entire river system. We see two new mounds to the east of the earlier two, so now Sabi Abiyad is a cluster of four nearby settlements, each under one hectare. This restructuring is probably related to the 8.2 Kiliur event. This change happens across the region around the same time. There's not a lot of evidence for long-distance interaction, but everywhere we see a kind of shift towards a more nomadic lifestyle. As we'll talk about, we see a fire around 6000 BCE. The southeastern mound is burned down. Near the bottom of every building, we see burned reeds, charred wood, and mud. At least 12 buildings are destroyed, both round and rectangular buildings. But the fire affected less than one total hectare of land. Because of this fire, we know how they built their roof. They would lay wooden rafters at regular intervals, cover them with reed mats, and cover that with a thick layer of mud, which would dry in the sun. This wasn't a total abandonment. The northeastern mound was still occupied. But by the early 5000s BCE, we see a more loosely associated community. More production is focused on the household. But we also see a two-story rectangular building with its facade buttressed with monumental niches, which we'll talk about during the Ubayid episodes. These are used to decorate Ubayid tripartite buildings and Uruk temples. And we'll talk about the tokens and figurines that we see inside this building. But first, before we get to the burned village around 6000 BCE, I want to talk about a single building that burned down a few generations earlier. A 2012 paper by Peter Ackermans and colleagues estimated this building burned down one to two generations earlier, between about 6050 and 6020 BCE. This building is 10 by 7 meters. It's T-shaped, with three rows of small storage rooms and one long hall. The walls are made of irregular clay slabs. Like later buildings, there's no evidence of an entrance at floor level, so you would likely enter through a ladder in the ceiling, although we also see portholes, which are essentially windows cut in the walls. Like later buildings, the roof was made with timbers, covered with reed matting, and then a layer of mud plaster for insulation. And like I said, this building was burned, and the fire that destroyed it must have been extremely hot because it centered the clay in the walls. That is, the physical structure of the walls were fired like clay in a kiln. You would need a huge amount of fuel to keep the fire this hot for this long. It would have had to burn for at least five hours, and it might have burned for several days. We see piles of ash over one meter tall in parts of this building, which is much more than we would expect from an accidental fire. In other words, they would have had to really try to get the fire this hot. They presumably brought in a huge amount of brushwood and other fuel, many cubic meters of fuel, and this fire would burn between 500 and 1,000 degrees Celsius, so it would be hard to get even near it. This raises the question, why go to all this trouble to destroy a house? Well, one possible answer might be that it was a funerary ritual for the young woman buried there. We see a primary grave of a young woman between 14 and 20 years old. There's no evidence of violence, 
Underneath her skull, we see a piece of yellow ochre and a large mammal bone. Her hand lay on half of a basalt mace head, which was the only grave good in this grave. Obviously, mace heads are a symbol of authority, like the female figurines we'll talk about. This one was broken in half, which might indicate the end of its use life. The young woman had traces of malnutrition, so dental hypoplasia, we talked about last episode, is when the tooth enamel grows less when you're starving or sick, and two of her teeth show signs of decay. She was laid on the floor before the building had burned, and the inside of the building was partially filled in with dirt. So her body and her grave goods were not as affected by the fire as the walls of the house, kind of insulated from the heat by all this dirt. Also in this house, we see 36 clay seal impressions. All had either stamp seal impressions or fingerprints. All of them were broken, which shows that they had served their use and were discarded afterwards. That is, the container was sealed, the seal was broken, people took whatever they needed from the container, and at this point, the two halves of the seal impression are garbage. We also see four clay balls with impressions from the tokens inside them. So we've talked about tokens. We've also found 57 tokens, which are small clay objects, usually small geometric shapes like balls, cylinders, discs, or cones. It may be that each token represents a certain quantity of a certain good, so people would have exchanged and carried these tokens as receipts of particular transactions, or as IOUs, or whatever. We also see four clay balls with impressions from the tokens inside them. So one way to prevent losing tokens is to take a lump of clay, push the tokens into the outside of the clay so that the clay has an impression of the token itself, and then you envelop the tokens in the clay. That way you're carrying one object instead of several. The outside of the object tells you about the contents of the object. Now you can look at the surface of the clay and see the impressions of the four tokens inside the clay. And then, you know, again, when it served its purpose, you break open the clay ball and remove the four tokens for whatever you need them for. Also in this house, we see spindle whorls and bone awls, which are tools for textiles, as well as figurines, stone tools, and pottery. All in all, we see many items needed for daily life. From modern simulations of Neolithic house fires, people would have had enough time to run inside and grab their stuff. So in other words, in houses with similar thatched roofs from experiments in Southeastern Europe, these houses would take about 20 minutes to burn. And also once the house actually does burn, it doesn't usually destroy the entire structure, just the ceiling. So it's not that hard to go in, clear out the debris and rebuild the roof. You don't have to start from scratch, which raises the question, why didn't people get their stuff? You know, we don't see any valuables as such, but in this house are a bunch of tools that people would have to make again. It may just be that they didn't want to risk running into a burning house for a tool that they could just make again, or these tools may be the woman's grave goods. We may also see some regular household garbage. For example, the seal impressions would just be left over from the daily business of living in a house. I don't know of any graves that include seal impressions, but of course there are many graves with seals themselves. Most likely, this house was a local administrative center and or the home of an extended family. It may or may not have been abandoned, but a young woman died, maybe the daughter of someone important. So people may have brought in grave goods and offerings and then laid them around the house, or maybe that was just the stuff already in the house. Then they piled dirt on top of the young woman, dragged in a whole bunch of brush, and then set fire to it. And then as the house burned over hours or maybe days, they may have added more fuel to the fire to keep it burning. Speaking of burning, though, for the rest of the section, we're going to focus on the phase that ended around 6000 BCE when a huge area of Savi Abiyad burned down. This preserved a moment in time, although they do seem to have gotten most of their valuables out. This period in Sabi Abiyad's history, between about 6200 and 6000 BCE, is often called the Burnt Village, because we have so much stuff that was frozen in time when these buildings burned down. We see two types of building during this period, apparently used for different things. We see round buildings, which were smaller and contained tools for making food and textiles. And we see rectangular buildings, which are bigger. They include more room for storage, and they have evidence of record keeping. In a 1998 article, David Wengrow wrote, quote, it seems reasonable to assert that buildings such as these were used by men to create a political and economic realm apart from women, end quote. So it may be during this period that gender division is an actual socioeconomic division within the household. 
In this scenario, men would be able to participate in this new system governing everyone's food, whereas women would be relegated to repetitive manual labor, like preparing food and textiles. That's one interpretation based on later gender roles. It's notable that even though we have a spatial division between administration and large-scale storage of food on one hand and making food and textiles on the other, we don't have any evidence that only women were doing the latter and only men were doing the former. But to start with these round buildings, these are smaller than the rectangular buildings, often much smaller. They're cone or dome-shaped. The clay walls eventually meet in the middle. This is notable because it means that people don't have to build a separate roof out of wood and reeds. That'll be relevant in a moment. The biggest round building we have is Building 6. The diameter is a little under 7 meters. Inside, we see spindle whorls, loom weights, and bone awls, all for textile production, as well as pestles for grinding grain, and a stone door socket for a wooden door. The other round buildings are smaller. Building 7 is about 4.5 meters in diameter. Buildings 8 and 9 are both 2.5 meters in diameter. That's 8 feet 2 inches from one wall to the other. Building 9 was the only round building damaged in the fire, partially because it was right next to Building 2, a rectangular building which burned. Like I said, these buildings did not have a separate roof made of reeds and wood. This made them much less flammable than the rectangular buildings. Speaking of which, rectangular buildings were bigger, often between 50 and 90 square meters, compared to a maximum of 40 for the round buildings. Inside, we see grain storage and record keeping and evidence of economic transactions. Their walls are made of rammed earth, unlike the rest of the region, which use mud bricks. Notably, we see several different types and colors of clay used for the walls. This was not for aesthetic value, though, because these different colors were covered up by mud plaster so it may have been for structural reasons. So at least as far as we can tell from the ground plan, not all of the rooms of the house were accessible to each other. We may be looking at separate suites for different branches of a family, or we might be missing an entrance via the ceiling that would connect different parts of the house. I mentioned portholes, which are round holes, about 50 centimeters in diameter. These are carved directly out of the rammed earth at window height, so there are probably windows. We see similar windows at Abu Hureyra and Ganj Dare. So building one is rectangular, at least 12.5 by 7.5 meters, or over 1,000 square feet. It's made up of nine rooms, oriented around a central courtyard. The building is on a northeast-southwest axis. Like later Ubayid buildings, the corners point toward cardinal directions. One room has an oven with a baby buried in it, with a small bowl as a grave good. They didn't cook the baby, they just buried it in an unused oven. Building two is another rectangular building with similar dimensions. It has 13 small square rooms in three rows, so this building was probably used for storage and a pivot hole rounded out in a lone boulder would have held a wooden door between two rooms. Worth noting that in one room, grain was stacked knee-high with burnt chaff. We also have seal impressions with imprints of baskets in the clay, which shows us that they were sealing baskets, and we also have a baby buried under one wall. In one room in building two, we see over 150 clay stamp seal impressions, clay tokens, figurines of women and animals, as well as stone and bone tools and ceramics and so on. Building 3 is a smaller rectangular building, nearby a series of ovens inside a walled enclosure. This building was apparently used to store food and fuel for the ovens. The biggest oven is a meter and a half tall with a vaulted roof. It's almost 3 meters in diameter. Heat penetrated the wall 4 centimeters in, turning the orange-brown clay black. There's not much to say about buildings 4 and 5, except for one room in building 5 with a bunch of sun-dried clay objects, including jar stoppers, loom weights, figurines, tokens, clay bullets, as we talked about in episode 6, and seal impressions. So it's similar to the room in building two. The roof of one of the rectangular buildings supported 11 clay torsos, which were adorned with wild sheep horns and cow leg bones. Holes along the sides might have originally held sticks to represent legs. So these might have been symbols meant to represent animals. Some seals in building five have similar imagery with goat and gazelle horns and bull heads. In a 1995 article, Peter Ackermans and Mark Verhoeven wrote, quote, It is interesting to note that in the fill of room seven and amid some of these clay, quote unquote, animals, the skeletal remains of two adults were found, with the bones completely crushed and burnt. These persons, too, must have fallen from the roof, end quote. 
So aside from what I've mentioned, we also see lots of objects made from local stone, like limestone, gypsum, sandstone, and quartzite. Basalt was a common imported stone. More rare imported stones include dolerite, granodiorite, serpentinite, chlorite, granite, and steatite. These are reserved for beads and pendants and sometimes bowls. Traces of ochre are common, both on grinding tools and on floors inside houses, which probably shows that it was commonly used as a pigment, maybe on the body or maybe on ceramics. So we have some kinds of administration that were apparently used before stamp seals. At Sabi Abiyad, we see incised pebbles or amulets, sometimes with a regular crosshatch pattern. Some of these are made from shards of stone vessels, but we don't have any impressions found, so it's not clear if they were used as stamps. We also have some clay seals with no impressions, like vessels and baskets, which are closed with slabs or stoppers. These are apparently held in place with the clay left to air dry, but we don't see any impressions in this clay. Obviously, this would seal off the container from the outside world, but anyone could just come by, remove the seal, take what was ever in the container, and then seal it with a different lump of clay, and no one would be the wiser. This may be why they switched to a system where everyone has their own unique seal. So we see almost 300 seal impressions at Sabi Abiyad, between about 6100 and 5900 BCE. Most of these are in small rooms inside large multi-room communal storage buildings. As far as we can tell, all seal impressions here are from Sabi Abiyad. They were all applied here, and they were all removed here. So we're not looking at a system of sealing and exchanging items between sites, but instead a way to inventory local storage produced and stored at Sabi Abiyad. So these clay ceilings are associated with miniature vessels, clay tokens, discs, and figurines, mostly sealed small containers like pottery, baskets, and bags. We don't have any door ceilings. Many seal impressions are from the same seal, which may show that the same person or family was involved in several different transactions, or at least a person or family marking their own property in a communal storage area. We have almost no actual stamp seals from the burnt village, despite the lots and lots of impressions we see there. So people may have had time to take their valuables with them when the house was burning. And if so, it appears that stamp seals would have been the first things they grabbed when the house was on fire. We have no evidence that seals were used for elite control, that is, as markers of institutional authority, as opposed to individual identity. We have impressions from 67 different stamps. Most common, we see goats, gazelles, snakes, and scorpions. Lots of seals in lots of different styles indicate that they were not associated with a central power, because often later on, when we see seal impressions from an official in a palace or temple, often the iconography will have something to do with the god of the temple, so these seals might be for marking private property in communal storage buildings. That is, when people leave the site, maybe to graze their herd seasonally, they bring their stuff to a shared storage shed and seal it up and then stamp the seal with their stamp seal. Which again, if anyone opens the container, they'll have to break the seal. And because they don't have your unique stamp seal, people will know that it was broken into. We don't know exactly what kinds of goods they were sealing. It would have had to be dry and solid with a long shelf life. So maybe dry grain or collected seeds, maybe obsidian or textiles. Some seal impressions have impressions of string on the other side. Most of these fibers are spun in a Z direction and then plied in an S direction. The string is generally one to two millimeters thick, but we have one cord that was seven millimeters thick, really more of rope. And we see ceilings and tokens in three buildings, including rectangular buildings two and five and building six, which is the biggest roundhouse. So these are probably not random debris, but probably collected from elsewhere and stored in specific places. This speaks to some kind of organized administration system. To quote Ackerman's Verhoeven in 1995, quote, a widely accepted standardized system of administration and recognition involving well-developed concepts of ownership and the presence of bureaucratic means to control it, end quote. So I mentioned female figurines. So we see a lot of female figurines with their heads broken off. Joan notes hypothesizes that these are for contractual purposes. This would be a new way to regulate trade and social relations. It appears to be standardized across a wide area, not only at Sabi Abiyad, but elsewhere, which might be evidence of a widely accepted administrative framework. From the two rooms I mentioned in buildings two and five, we see dozens of female figurines with clearly marked breasts and vulvas, they have narrow waists with exaggerated hips and bellies. Some have holes through the neck, apparently to wear around the neck. And the head was apparently made separately and attached with a dowel. 
A lot of these female figurines are systematically broken at the neck or the waist after firing. The vast majority of fragments we have are from the bottom half. So there's almost certainly a lot of symbolism we're missing out on. In 2012, Joan Oates wrote that this, quote, may have served some administrative or even legal purpose, end quote, maybe formalizing an agreement. This practice was fairly widespread. We see it also at Tel Es-Sawan in northern Iraq, which we'll look at in episode 10, and at Haji Firuz Tepe in northwestern Iran, where we have the first evidence of wine, and which we'll also visit in episode 10. In 1998, David Wengro wrote, quote, Since women were the first resource over which socially defined rights of control were exercised, it is not surprising that female symbolism played a part in the extension of property rights to other categories of goods. Hence, clay female figurines evoking sentiments of trust and reciprocity associated with nuptial agreements may have been broken in such contexts as a symbolic act of contract between men, end quote. So these various households would be part of a unified community. It's unclear exactly how cohesive it was or how it was governed, if at all. This handful of families could probably handle their own issues. In 2012, Peter Ackermans wrote, quote, Let there be no misunderstanding. People were subjected to relations of dominance, the essence of every human society from the parent-child relationship onwards, and some individuals, groups, or families undoubtedly were more powerful than others for a variety of reasons, even in these often very small communities. Yet, any such dependencies were handled face-to-face, -face, rather than in the shape of clear-cut, chiefly ranking, or a centralized village authority, end quote. So leadership would be temporary and non-institutional based on specific situations, it's likely that all adults participated in some kind of collective decision-making, although there may have been a hierarchy based on age, reputation, and maybe gender. So essentially, we see, instead of a central institutionalized authority, people, households, and families bound by many overlapping obligations to each other, probably with different people holding different kinds of power in different social spheres. So just a quick caveat, when I talk about women, I'm talking about female skeletons. We can't know exactly what their gender roles might have been. It's certainly not impossible that they might have had more than two gender roles socially, but of course, all we have are skeletons. Speaking of gender, though... As I've talked about, during the Neolithic, overall life expectancy declined. This was especially the case for women, mostly from increased childbirth. So based on modern ethnography of mobile foragers, forager women tend to have children every four years or so, which they ensure via abortion or infanticide when necessary. When you're moving a lot from site to site, you can only carry one nursing infant at a time. So the fact that they have less nutrition spread out over a wider distance and they have to move farther to access it means that women's bodies need more time to replenish the nutrients in order to give birth again. But as we've talked about, there are some new pressures on the family during the Neolithic. Your food supply relies on intensive agricultural labor. The more, the better. You have more people in closer contact with each other, leading to more disease and death, which means you have to have more kids in order to maintain your population, and you need more kids to grow more farm labor in order to feed everyone. So as a result, women switched from giving birth every four years to giving birth every one to two years. This is made possible by a more calorie-rich diet. You know, the more energy you get from your food, the less time you need between births to recuperate. The physiological effects of a high cereal diet include an earlier puberty and a later menopause, so a longer childbearing period overall, more regular periods and ovulation. It means infants can be weaned on grains earlier, which leads to a shorter breastfeeding period per baby, which leads to more babies. But also, human birth is already extremely risky for both mother and child. Aside from the massive energy drain on the body, there's a huge risk of bleeding to death or dying from an infection. Of course, they have no modern medicine. Other risks include premature births and smaller babies. The risk of mortality for both mother and child increases over time, with the greatest risk for women over 35. So as a result, the life expectancy for the general population dropped to the low 20s in some places. If you live to be 5, you were likely to make it until childbearing age. And if you survive childbearing age, you were likely to live until your 50s or 60s. So these statistics are skewed by higher infant death and maternal death. So marriage exists in all human societies in some form. Throughout history, marriage binds different communities together. And everywhere, there is a universal rule that you have to marry outside your family although different societies put the boundary in different places. As a result, marriage between different people of different cultures is literally as old as humanity. This is one of the prime movers of cultural exchange. 
It helps spread language, technology, social practices, and religious ideas between groups of people. And over time, it can help build a relationship between groups of people that started off with nothing in common. So before the Neolithic, it's likely that the two families of the two people getting married would exchange gifts like jewelry. In this case, a material exchange would reinforce a social relationship because there's no social hierarchy. Nobody's status would change because of these gifts. But what we see during the Neolithic is the increased availability of surplus livestock, that is wealth to use as you please, not just for subsistence, and feasts would be an avenue for conspicuous consumption, as you sacrifice your wealth to show off to your in-laws, for example, and weddings would be an opportunity to establish relationships via high-value gifts. This is a good long-term strategy. You already have kids and you already have cattle. You may as well marry your kids off to allies and give your allies cattle in order to form permanent family relationships. So now sharing your resources allows a kind of economy of scale. You have potential access not only to your household and to your in-laws' household, but also, if they move away and form their own separate household, your kid's household. In a 2019 article, Cédric Baudet wrote that marriage is, quote, the sealing of a contract between two kin groups, the lineage or the clan, and the representatives, in particular, the elder, end quote. So this is an incentive for overproduction. So like I said, instead of just producing enough to feed yourself in terms of livestock, now the more livestock you have in order to trade away, the closer and more permanent relationships you can build with other producers which means that your extended family now owns an unprecedented amount of cattle. The social relationships are nice, but it also translates into more food, which is good for everyone. And of course, exogamy, or marrying outside your community, leads to more complex marriage networks, including with strangers. It also leads to more genetic variation within communities, which is a good adaptation against disease. If everyone in the community is genetically related to each other, and they all share the same genetic weakness to a particular disease, that's not great when they get that disease. And also, exchanging goods with other families also allows them to exchange new farming practices. So all in all, this leads to more interconnected societies with access to more wealth. So a dowry is a major payment associated with a wedding agreement between families. Who pays whom is different in different societies. When you have lots of people in one place, each new person in the house is a new mouth to feed. In this case, the groom's family is usually paid by the bride's family for the imposition of having to support her with the assumption being that, at least at first, a pregnant woman and young children will not be able to work as hard, but will still need to be fed. These are generally the rules for large urban societies, especially when you have to bring in food from elsewhere that you're not growing yourself. But, on the other hand, when the population is more spread out, fewer people are less of a strain on local resources. Now, instead of land, labor is at a premium. In this case, the bride's family is often paid by the groom's family, because the bride's family is losing her labor and the labor of her potential children. So instead of a dowry, this is often called bride wealth, Earlier anthropologists called this a bride price, but it's not a purchase of a commodity as much as it is a dowry. In Anatolia, in the late 6000s BCE, we have evidence of the latter, that is, brides moving in with her husband's family. His family pays some of their surplus livestock to her family, either to be kept by her parents or given to her and her husband, you know, to set up their own household wealth. So feasts are a universal component of marriage ceremonies. All of the normal reasons for holding a feast are extra relevant to weddings, celebrating a special occasion, displaying your wealth, sharing food, getting drunk, giving gifts, and so on. At these feasts, heads of families can coordinate the economic and practical affairs of the new combined family. Everyone can meet their new relatives and maybe plan new marriages, depending on how marriage rules work. And of course, wedding feasts are an obvious venue for performing gender roles. Undoubtedly, there's a massive amount of tradition and symbolism that is now lost to us. But the pottery used for feasting also appears to have a whole lot of gender-related symbolism. In the early 6000s BCE, a kind of crude, chaff-tempered pottery spreads throughout northern Mesopotamia. Among other things, they depict male livestock and women holding their breasts. So, you know, at the occasion where everyone is performing these gender roles, you might also use pottery that has symbols of male virility and female fertility literally painted on it. These male-focused pots appear in quote-unquote male-centered buildings. They appear to reify the role of the male head of household as the host of an equally important man, which in this scenario would be the bride's father. This may have served to strengthen the bonds between male heads of household at the expense of their wives and daughters. Again, one theory among many. 
So we're going to finish up by looking at female figurines. We talked in episode six about female figurines at Chattahoyuk. These appear to be associated with certain kinds of animals like leopards and possibly with gathering and growing grains. Generally, these clay figurines have the body and the appendages assembled separately. Early on, they're mostly unfired and or baked in a house fire. Later on, they're, of course, fired in pottery kilns. Generally, they tend to accentuate breasts, vulvas, and a kind of female fat pattern on the torso and legs, which may be connected to fertility. It may just be emphasizing femaleness. These figurines are often found in and around the house, so they might be used by all members of a community, not just by a particular group in a particular place. In a 2013 paper, Peter Ackermans wrote, quote, Ritual knowledge was apparently not limited to specialists, sorcerers, medicine men, shamans, etc., but shared by many, perhaps in specific contexts, such as initiation ceremonies or rituals associated with birth and death, end quote. These female figurines sometimes depict naked women, but increasingly as time goes on, we see them wearing clothes. So already, by the Pottery Neolithic, clothes have become part of the public presentation of identity. By the early 5000s, these figurines are often more elaborate and more decoratively painted. For example, at the site of Kash Kashok in northeastern Syria, we see seated naked women holding their breasts. So that is Sabi Abiyad and the role of women in the Pottery Neolithic. No one ascends from the underworld unmarked. If Inanna wishes to return from the underworld, she must provide someone in her place. So previously, Inanna was allowed to come back to life, but only if she found someone to take her place in the underworld. As Inanna ascended from the underworld, the Gala, the demons of the underworld, clung to her side. The Gala were demons who know no food, who know no drink, who eat no offerings, who drink no libations, who accept no gifts. They enjoy no lovemaking. They have no sweet children to kiss. They tear the wife from the husband's arms. They tear the child from the father's knees. They steal the bride from her marriage home. The one who walked in front of Inanna was not a minister, yet he carried a scepter. The one who walked behind her was not a warrior, yet he carried a mace. Ninshubor, dressed in a soiled sackcloth, waited outside the palace gates. So she sees her servant, Ninshubor, in mourning. Ninshubor, she's cool. When she saw Inanna, surrounded by the gala, she threw herself in the dust at Inanna's feet. The gala said, Walk on, Inanna. We will take Ninshubor in your place. <gasps> no. Inanna cried. No! Ninshubor is my constant support. She is my Sukal who gives me wise advice. She is my warrior who fights by my side. She did not forget my words. She set up a lament for me by the ruins. She beat the drum for me at the assembly places. She circled the houses of the gods. She tore at her eyes, at her mouth, at her thighs. She dressed herself in a single garment like a beggar. Alone, she set out for Nippur and the temple of Enlil. She went to Ur and the temple of Nana. She went to Eridu and the temple of Enki. Because of her, my life was saved. I will never give Ninshibor to you. The Gala said, Walk on, Inanna. We will accompany you to Uma. So the same scene repeats with her son Shara, the god of Uma in central Sumer. Again, she refuses to let them take him. The Gala said, Walk on to your city, Inanna. We will go with you to the big apple tree in Unug. I love this voice. <laughs> in Unug, by the big apple tree, Dumuzi, the husband of Inanna, was dressed in his shining May garments. He sat on his magnificent throne. He did not move. The Gala seized him by his thighs. They poured milk out of his seven churns. They broke the reed pipe, which the shepherd was playing. So just as Erish Kigal fastened on Inanna, the Eye of Death, here Inanna fastens on Dumuzi, the Eye of Death. Yoikes! She, I mean, she has all the powers of being the, the god of sex and speaking and war and everything else now. Yep. She doesn't need him. <laughs> It's true. Really, why does she have a husband in the first place? That's a good question. Inanna fastened on Dumuzi the eye of death. She spoke against him the word of wrath. She uttered against him the cry of guilt. Take him! Take Dumuzi away! 
the Gala, who know no food, who know no drink, who eat no offerings, who drink no libations, who accept no gifts, seized Dumuzi. They made him stand up. They made him sit down. They beat the husband of Inanna. They gashed him with axes. Dumuzi let out a wail. He raised his hands to heaven, to Utu, the god of justice, and beseeched him. Oh, Utu, you are my brother-in-law. I am the husband of your sister. I brought cream to your mother's house. I brought milk to Ningal's house. I am the one who carried food to the holy shrine. I am the one who brought wedding gifts to Unug. I am the one who danced on the holy knees, the knees of Inanna. Utu, you who are a just god, a merciful god, change my hands into the hands of a snake. Change my feet into the feet of a snake. Let me escape from my demons. Do not let them hold me. The merciful Utu accepted Dumuzi's tears. He changed the hands of Dumuzi into snake hands. He changed the feet of Dumuzi into snake feet. Dumuzi escaped from his demons. They could not hold him. (laughs) 